Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in our study of the Genesis account of the global flood, we've come to chapter 7, and you said chapter 7 is the crux of the description of the flood itself. Yes, Scott. We saw in chapter 5 the genealogy of Noah, who would become the key character in the flood account. In chapter 6, we learned about the conditions that developed on the earth that resulted in the Lord's decision to destroy the earth and blot out, or wipe out as we would say today, every living thing from the face of the land. And in chapter 6, the Lord tells Noah to build an ark how to build it, and to take his family and pairs of every kind of land animal on the ark to preserve life. So, when we come to chapter 7, many decades have passed. Exactly how many, we don't know, but the construction of the ark is finished, and the Lord speaks to Noah again. So, Scott, read Genesis 7-1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So the time has come. It's time to get in the ark because the Lord is now going to send the flood. And I think it's important to note that given what the Lord said about Noah, Noah had remained faithful and obedient through all the difficulties he would have faced during the many years of building the ark. And preaching to people around him. Well, that's a good point, Scott. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Imagine how tempting it would have been to get discouraged, to give up, to lose faith in the midst of such pressure from the ungodly world surrounding him. In all those years, Noah saw no results from all his efforts to warn the people of the judgment to come. And maybe they laughed at him. Well, I, I think they probably did. But let me ask any of our listeners that are struggling in their Christian ministry or in their efforts to share the gospel, why are you doing what you do? Is it to see lost people saved? Is it to help some of your acquaintances, friends, or family members grow in the Lord? Those are important reasons for being, as Noah was described, a preacher of righteousness. But ultimately, wanting to help others is not enough to persevere in the Christian life. Our main motivation must be to please God. Our focus should be on the Lord Himself, not on others, or how they respond to our efforts to help them. When we are concentrating on others and what they are doing, we easily lose sight of the presence of the Lord. But notice what the Lord said to Noah. You alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. We are always in the Lord's presence. And if we live with that mindset, our motivation to please Him will get us through the toughest times. Dr. Scripture, I think the Bible puts what you're describing this way. Noah walked with God. Exactly. And we who live in the church age are exhorted to do just that. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I think of Jesus saying that he was the light of the world, and we're told in 1 John to walk in the light. Yeah, there are so many ways to express that idea of walking with God. One more way to express that idea is to abide in God. Jesus said in John 15.4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. 
And the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We can only imagine that Noah surely would have had his ups and downs through all those years, but he persevered and lived righteously by faith in the presence of God. So, now that the time for judgment had come, God gives Noah more instructions. Let's read Genesis 7, 2 through 5. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Okay, so I'm not exactly sure if there's an important point to it, but there's a lot of sevens in those verses. Yep. But what we see God doing in these instructions is he's expanding on what he had told Noah back in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. In those verses, God didn't distinguish clean from unclean animals. But now he tells Noah to take sevens of the clean animals. And the word is plural, by the way, the word sevens. And that may be significant because some scholars interpret the number seven for clean animals and birds and the number two for the unclean animals to mean pairs of animals. In other words, God is telling Noah to take seven pairs, a male and a female, of clean animals and birds and two pairs of unclean animals. So, for example, then, Noah would have taken 14 sheep, seven rams plus seven ewes, not just seven total. That's right. And that seems to me to make much more practical sense, both from a survival perspective and a gene pool perspective. I mean, if there were just two elephants, a male and a female, if either one died before they had offspring, the elephant would have gone extinct. But two pairs greatly increase the chance for any particular kind to successfully begin reproducing. And what did you mean by two pairs of animals was more practical from a gene pool perspective? Well, the totality of genetic information of any given kind is carried by all the individuals of that kind combined. So, take Canis familiaris, for example. Canis familiaris, you mean dogs. (laughs) Yes, the family dog, the familiar (laughs) dog, man's best friend. Yep. (laughs) Some are dark, some light, some have long legs, some have long ears, etc., Each individual carries the genetic information to be a Canis familiaris, but not all the information the dog kind was created with. So, if you wipe out the entire population of a kind, except for two individuals, whatever specific traits those two carried will now be all the genetic information, that's called the gene pool, that the dog kind will possess. So, a huge amount of genetic diversity would be lost. But if you have two pairs of dogs, that doubles the amount of potential genetic diversity as the population of Canis familiaris repopulates the earth. Now, someone might object and say, that still is fantastically small, and the problem of interbreeding will quickly exert itself in the species. Well, that would be a valid point. 
because any harmful mutation in just one of those four individuals would end up being carried by the entire population after just a few generations. But what also should be taken into account is there would have been very little harmful mutation in the gene pool of any kind of animal, or humans for that matter, before the flood. It was after the flood that mutations most likely began to accumulate in any given kind. And that is most likely evidenced in the decline of human lifespans. Exactly. That's an important part of the creation model I adhere to. And Scott, I haven't touched on this since we started this series on the global flood account of Genesis. And so here's a good time to mention it. You know, given our program is Scripture on Creation... Someone might ask why I'm spending so much time discussing the flood. It wasn't part of creation. In fact, it occurred more than a thousand years after creation. So, why spend so much time on the flood? The reason mainly is because as we look at the earth and the state of life on it, it appears to be very different from how it was described in Genesis 1 and 2. But the key to explaining that is the flood. The Genesis record presents a global flood, and as such, it covered the entire earth, affecting the entire world and all life on it. Would you say the book Whitcomb and Morris wrote, The Genesis Flood, is the source of information that really established the connection? The connection between creation and the flood, I mean. Indeed it did. I would say The Genesis Flood, by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, was the impetus for creation science. And it, being written in 1961, well, the amount of information that has accumulated through scientific research since that time is nothing short of colossal. And whether it's archaeological, geological, astronomic, or genetic, modern scientific research continually supports the creation model of what we would expect to find given the biblical record of both creation and the flood. So, getting back to the text of Genesis chapter 7. We left Noah doing all that the Lord had commanded him to do, and he has seven days to do it. Uh Uh-oh. Now, Scott, do you think one week before the flood hit, the ark was empty? And it wasn't until God told Noah he had seven days to prepare that they started loading the boat? I would say definitely not. (laughs) Noah surely would have had been loading all kinds of supplies on the ark. After all, like you mentioned in an earlier program, the ark was essentially a huge warehouse. Where better to store everything you wanted to take with you for a new beginning on the new world? Of course. Many of the animals he'd been collecting were probably already on the ark. And there would have been hosts of creatures living in the ark that Noah didn't even have to collect. We had talked in the last program about how long it probably took to build the ark. And my proposal was many decades, maybe five or six. Imagine how many bugs and birds, snakes and lizards that the Bible calls creeping things would have colonized the ark over a 50-plus year span. Try building a house for a month or a couple months and not having bunches of insects and rodents you know, camping out right. there. Keep mice out of your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ark would have been its own ecosystem by then. I think it's reasonable to understand the week Noah had left before the flood was used to gather up the necessities of life for the journey, if we can call it that, and get the large number of different kinds of animals into their living compartments, especially the livestock. And we should also understand, some of the animals came to the ark. In other words, Noah apparently didn't even need to go get them. Let's read Genesis 7, verses 6 through 9. 
Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. So did you notice what I just read in verse 10? It said the animals went to Noah. Yeah. God either supernaturally put it into the creature's heads, or they instinctually had the urge to go to safety. We simply don't know. But isn't it interesting? Animals of every single created kind had more sense than the entire population of human beings. Yeah, Noah wasn't even preaching to them. (laughs) None of the people Noah had been preaching to warning them of the coming judgment, entered the ark. And after those seven days, which elapsed after God told Noah to enter the ark with his family and all the animals, God shut the door and the opportunity to be saved was over. Genesis seven fifteen and 16 says, So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says. 